the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. You hear the name Benedict Arnold, and what comes to mind? Yeah, treason, traitor. We'd never call our children Benedict Arnold. What about Jezebel? What comes to mind when you hear that name? Right. We'll talk about her next. Join us. Jezebel, just the very name, brings up all kinds of thoughts and ideas about the type of person that she was. Well, here in Revelation chapter 2, the letter to the church at Thyatira, Jesus tells the church that he's got a lot that he's commending them for, but he also has a problem because they tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. So what does that mean? And how does that apply to you and I today? I'm glad you asked. Stick around. Pastor Gary Wagner will lay it all out for us on this edition of Abounding Grace. Here's Gary now with today's program. Some of you remember Pastor Smokey Stover. He told me a story years ago about he and some independent Baptists started an organization in Modesto here in California called Concerned Christians for Good Government. This was before there was the Christian right movement or anything like that. Smokey, although a Baptist at the time, was the only Calvinist on the committee. They put together a questionnaire whereby they would interview political candidates on the issues. And then they would publish the candidates' answers and they would distribute them. This was even before there was a Christian coalition. They would send these questionnaires around to all the churches and show just how liberal and unchristian these candidates were. Smokey said they were becoming pretty effective. More churches found out and were asking them for their information. Then one time, at one of the board meetings, the chairman rose from his chair and he said, I haven't been able to sleep for weeks. I believe that this organization is displeasing to God because we are trying to change things. And the Bible says nothing is going to change until the rapture. And after that is the great tribulation. So here and now, I dissolve this corporation. And that was the end of it. Even though they were becoming effective in changing the political environment and people's minds, But you see, this man was guilt-ridden because he was trying to do something about the culture and there is nothing he felt to do for a culture that is going to hell in a handbasket because someday it's all going to be burnt up and God is going to start all over. So why polish the brass on a sinking ship? That nonsense did not start with the Bible. It started with Montanism. 
Montanism also had a great emphasis on Satan's activity in the world. Someone who I believe is a modern-day Montanist wrote the book called Satan is Alive and Well on Planet Earth. Their philosophy focuses on the power of Satan to control events. Also, Montanism shows up in the charismatic movement and stands on the fringe of Christianity. Also, in Montanism, there is a lot of asceticism and radical Platonism of people separating themselves like monks and nuns from the rest of life. So you see, beloved, where compromise will get you. And once it starts, it's almost impossible to stop it. So there are two ways so far that we have talked about to approaching pagan culture. The first is compromise, which, of course, is out of the question. The second is by retreat, which is basically rooted in an unbelief. And the third and biblical approach to culture is by reconstruction, Christian reconstruction, by bringing the gospel of Christ and the law of God to bear on all aspects of our culture on seeking to bring the word of God to bear on every area of human society. Now, the enemies of the gospel, oh, they don't hate compromise. They love and embrace compromising Christians. They will even vote for them. And the non-Christian enemies of the church love retreat. They love it when Christians pull out of the battle and no longer resist. But they hate and they loathe and despise a Christian reconstruction approach to culture. They see that as one of the biggest threats to freedom and to liberty and justice for all people. And so they hate it and they oppose it and they ridicule it and seek to destroy it and discredit any form of trying to reconstruct or change culture by the word of God, even in the church. Joe Warcraft gave me an interesting article that I'm going to read a portion of to you just to give you an example of how much they hate Reconstruction. The title of this article is called A Christian Plot for Domination. And it can be found on Google if you'd like to search for it. It starts out by saying, remember, this was written, I think, around 2008, 2012, before one of those elections. It says, Michelle Bachman and Rick Perry aren't just devout. Both of them have deep ties to a fringe fundamentalist movement known as Christian Reconstruction, which says Christians should rule the world. Can you just hear the panic in her voice? The author calls it first here dominionism, and then he calls it Christian Reconstruction. It says, dominionism derives from a small fringe sect called Christian Reconstruction, founded by a Calvinistic theologian named R.J. Rush Dooney in the 1960s. Christian Reconstruction openly advocates replacing American law with the strict laws of the Old Testament. Oh, no. Replete with a death penalty for homosexuality, abortion, and even apostasy. The gospel of Christian Reconstruction is obviously limited and mainstream Christian right figures like Ralph Reeve have denounced it. And I ask you, those who know anything about politics, where is Rex Reed today? 
You don't hear a thing from him any longer. You can just feel this fear in their voices when they think this up. Here's another quote from this article with the, when, where the author quotes a friend of mine, George Grant. Christians have an obligation, a mandate, a commission, a holy responsibility to reclaim the land for Jesus Christ, to have dominion in civil structures, just as in every other aspect of life and godliness. But it's dominion we are after, not just a voice. It's dominion we are after, not just equal time. It's world conquest by the word of God that we want. Now you can imagine how an unbeliever who hates us would react to this. Listen to this last paragraph of that article. We have not seen this sort of thing at the highest levels of the Republican Party before. This article was written, um, I remember now, in 2011, and it was updated around 2017. Those of us who wrote about the Christian fundamentalist influence on the Bush administration were alarmed that one of his advisors, Marvin Olasky, who is actually the editor of World Magazine, which is a Christian uh, uh, magazine uh, uh, on the line of Time magazine, was associated with Christian Reconstruction. It seemed unthinkable at that time that an American president, president was taking advice from even a single person who was, whose ideals were so inimical or hostile or obstructive to democracy. Few of us, that is the leftist cabal, could imagine that someone who actually championed such ideas would have a shot at the White House, talking again about Rick Perry and Michelle Bachman. It turns out we were not paranoid enough. If Bush eroded the separation of church and state, the GOP is now poised to nominate someone who will mount an all-out assault on it. We need to take their beliefs seriously because they certainly do. So you see, they will take compromise. They'll take retreat. But if you in any way, shape, or form identify with an attempt to reconstruct society by the word of God, then you become the enemy. You supposedly become the enemy of freedom. You become the enemy of decency and order and the whole American dream. I read a book around 2002 or 2003, which was written in 1996. It was actually one of the rare um, uh, novels that uh, I do read. But it was called The Revolt. It's a story about a governor in Virginia in modern times who came under the influence of a prophetic figure in California. And he was the head of an organization called California Institute of Theonomic Law. Sounds a little bit like Rusash Rushduni, doesn't it? Well, this was obviously an attack on Rushduni, except that the star that represented Rushduni was a tall and handsome blonde-haired guy who lived a rather lascivious lifestyle, and he eventually compromised and sold out to the federal government. Well, the author obviously didn't have too high a view of Rush Dooney. Uh, Gary North, Rush Dooney's son-in-law, is even mentioned in this book, but of course is given a new name. And he and Rush's characters don't 
get along in this book, which was actually true of Rush and his son-in-law, Gary North, becoming even more familiar with Rush Dooney. The governor of Virginia is so popular that the citizenry is on, are on his side. And he hires the Rush Dooney character to be his chief of staff in Richmond. And they give a 42-hour ultimate to the president of the United States. They tell him that if he doesn't get rid of the socialism and the immorality and the disregard for God's law in the federal government, Virginia will succeed from the union. It's funny that it was in Richmond, Virginia, isn't it? So the federal government, of course, doesn't do a thing. So Virginia succeeds from the Union along with the state of North Carolina, and they create, listen to this, the Reformed American States. They replace the Constitution with the Mosaic legislation of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And the woman who wrote the book makes all of this look absolutely hideous. She talks about how terrible it would be if you had the death penalty for murderers and homosexuals and the like. She was ripping the governor and the state to pieces for succeeding and for creating a theocracy. In the end of the book, there's pretty much a, a, a great standoff, and Virginia is portrayed as being very ugly and despotic. The Rush Dooney character sells out, and it makes us look like, in her words, a bunch of Christian Nazis. This is the kicker. Some of you are going to know this name. Her name is Susan Wise Bauer, who is one of the most influential writers in the Christian homeschool movement. If you use any of her books, beware. She not only hates the Reformed faith and Reconstructionism, she hates creationism. She and her husband, although they went to Westminster Seminary, just absolutely despise the Reformed faith. So beware, beloved. So I, call all of, I say all of this to let you know that the one approach to culture that is biblical, the world hates. But that's okay. Because the Son of God has the sword, sharp sword coming out of his mouth, and that sword is far greater than all the swords that men can put against us. So what is the warning? Verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, etc. Verse 21. I gave her time to repent. You see here, the grace and the patience and the mercy of God, even though she was trying to seduce the church. Nevertheless, God was willing to accept her repentance, but she didn't want to repent of her immorality. Now, that is, that is actually immorality. Is that actually immorality, or is it spiritual, covenantal immorality? She was a member of the church. I think it's all together, that she and the people that followed her were spiritual, covenantal adulterers. adulterers. They were not faithful to their bridegroom, and as a result, actual physical immorality described their lives. Here's what he says in verse 22. Behold, I will throw her upon a bed of sickness. Now, that's pretty strong language. 
And remember, this is Jesus talking here. He says, I'm going to confine her to a bed of sickness so she can't influence anyone any longer. And those who commit adultery, physical, spiritual, covenantal with her, I'm going to cast them into tribulation, which of course was in the first century, unless they repent of their deeds. He's still giving them the opportunity to repent here. Verse 23, and I will kill her children, and which are really her followers, not her physical children, with pestilence, with plagues, and with death. And those who commit adultery with her into the great tribulation and all of the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. Remember now, this is Jesus. Jesus sometimes must act very severely toward his compromising and inconsistent and penitent churches that tolerate people and thoughts like Jezebel. And he does it not because he's a mean God. He cleans house on occasion because he wants everyone to know who he is. And he wants everyone to know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds and you will not Escape. Verse 24. But I say to you, the rest that are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not compromised, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. I place no other burden than what? Come unto me, all you that are all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Submission to God's yoke is light. Submission to God's word and to God's law and to God's sovereignty is light compared to the severity of life for those who submit to other yokes. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. Don't let loose of it. And he who does overcome, or he who deals with the sin in his life, and who repents, and he who keeps my deeds until the end. And then he quotes Psalm 2. To him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. So the promise is to those in this church who repent, or who do not give in to Jezebel's seduction, but are holding fast to the truth and godliness until I come, he sets their purity of life over against a compromised life. He says, it is purity of life. It is submission to my light burden that will overcome the enemies of the truth. And I will give to those who are living in purity of life, submitting to my yoke and no other. I will give to them and share with them authority over the nations that I have. And I will use them to crush all of those nations with a rod of iron who refuse to submit to my authority. And to those churches that compromise... To those churches that tolerate evil within their midst, they will be destroyed along with the rest of Christ's enemies. They will be sick 
They will be cut down with the plague. But those who are repentant, who remain faithful, Christ will use with the sword that comes out of his mouth to overcome all of the nations of the world and their unbelief. Let me read to you again from Pastor David Chilton. He says, The faithful Christians in Thyatira were suffering from both the heathen world outside and the compromising heretics within the church. They probably were tempted to doubt whether they would ever win in this struggle. The most prosperous and successful Christians were the ones who were the most faith, who were the most faithful to Christ. It looked as if the Orthodox were fighting a losing battle. They were so powerless. By now they were unable even to oust the apostates from the church. Yet Christ promises the angel, the bishop, he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end to him, I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of a potter are broken to pieces as I also have received from my father. This is a reference to the father's promise to the son as recorded in Psalm 2, 8 and 9. As of me, I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance And the very ends of the earth is thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt shatter them like earthenware. God the Son has been granted the rule of the world. And all nations will come under his messianic kingship. And he lists several passages here like Psalm 22, 46, 65, 66, 68. All of them in the Psalms. Whatever opposition is offered against his kingdom will be crushed absolutely. And the installation of Christ as universal king prophesied in this passage clearly took place at Christ's first coming through his birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension to glory. This can be confirmed by simply looking up the numerous New Testament quotations by Psalm 2 and 110, both of which are about Christ's kingship. The point of the quotation here is that the Christian overcomers in this age are promised a share in the messianic reign of Jesus Christ in time and on earth. In spite of all opposition, who are obedient, those who are obedient to his commands will rule the world, reconstructing it for his glory in terms of his laws. Psalm 2 shows God laughing and sneering at the pitiful attempts of the wicked to fight against and overthrow his kingdom. He has already given his son all authority in heaven and earth. We see that in Matthew 28, uh, verses 18 through 20. Is it possible that the king will be defeated? He has, in fact, warned all earthly rulers to submit to his government or perish. Psalm 2, 10 through 12. And the same is true of his church. The nation that will not serve us will perish. All the peoples of the earth will be subdued under our feet. Promises made originally to Israel, but now to be fulfilled in the new Israel, the church. Beloved, as I have said so many times, we should be the most hopeful people on the face of this earth. It may not happen in our lifetime, but God has promised that he will rule the nations. Verse 28. And I will give him the morning star. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the two promises to these faithful Christians are that I will share with them my dominion, my power, and my authority, and I will give them the morning star. Well, what is the morning star? 
Oh, we're not left to guess. In Revelation twenty-two sixteen, Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. So the blessing that Jesus promises to those who stay firm, who don't compromise, who hold fast, the thing he promises to them is himself. And beloved, that is the greatest blessing of all. That is, a person who is faithful possesses Christ. And that's the best of all of God's promises. So in the heat of the battle, with many in opposition against us, remember that you have Christ. Christ has a sword greater than all the other swords coming from his mouth, his word. He is the warrior of Israel. He is the conqueror of the world. Beloved, the battle is ours. And it is total victory that is ours. If we do not compromise. Amen. Well, that's all the time we have today. This has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. If you'd like to review today's broadcast, we would invite you to contact us for a copy of the program. They're available for just $5. Mention today's date and we'll send a CD your way. Here's where to write to us. PMB number 402, 1484 Pollard Road. That's in Los Gatos, California. The zip code is 95032. Again, that's PMB number 402-1484, Pollard Road, Los Gatos, California, 95032 is that address. Our phone number, if you'd rather call, 408-866-5607. That's 408-866-5607. Our website is reformedheritage.org, and if you'd like to join us for worship, Sunday services are at 2 p.m. We meet at the Lone Hill Church on 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. Directions at our website, reformedheritage.org, or again, call 408-866-5607. Thank you for joining us today. We look forward to seeing you next time we get together as we continue our studies in God's Word. Until then, may Christ be your abounding grace. Amen.